Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that A Public Affair is the best podcast in Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. On the night of July 26, 2019, Jefferson Rodriguez, the eight-year-old son of a Nicaraguan migrant worker, was killed when he was run over on a dairy farm about half hour north of Madison. What happened that night and what occurred in the immediate aftermath and since reveals the story of what has been described as a accumulated a complex of accumulated failures embedded at the heart of a labor system that provides the milk products most of us consume. Joining us to describe what took place and what it tells us are the investigative journalists Melissa Sanchez and Mariam Jamil, authors of Death on a Fa- Dairy Farm, an article that appeared today as part of the American America's Dairyland, an ongoing series from the independent nonprofit public interest news source ProPublica. A reporter at ProPublica since 2017, Melissa Sanchez's reporting has focused on immigrants and low-wage workers. A recipient of numerous local and national awards, she previously worked for the Chicago Reporter, Catalyst Chicago, El Nuevo Herald in Miami, and the Yakima Washington Herald Republic. Senator at ProPublica's Washington, D.C. newsroom, Mariam Jamil, is a reporter working on community-sourced investigations. Her focus has centered on how federal policy affects workplace rights. Previously, she was a reporter with the Center for Public Integrity, where she investigated racial inequality in employment, dangerous workplace exposures, and wage theft by federal contractors. Well, first off, of course, I want to welcome you both, Melissa and Mariam. Welcome to WORT. Thank you, Alan, for having us. Sure. Thank you. Your work has exposed a multi-layered tragic story surrounding the 2019 death of eight-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez, as I mentioned, the son of a uh, Nicaraguan, excuse me, son of a Nicaraguan immigrant worker. It took place on a small dairy farm right here in Dane County. You've written that what happened to Jefferson and his father is a story of of a accumulation of failures, a broken immigration system that makes it difficult for people to come here, even as entire industries depend on their labor, small farms that largely go unexamined by safety inspectors, and a law enforcement system that's ill-equipped to serve the the people who don't speak English. So where does one begin? Let's start perhaps with the setting, the the stage, the setting or sort of backstory for what happened. Tell our listeners about DNK Dairy. Sure, I can I can start there. DNK um, is no longer in operation. Maybe to start, it's a it's a small dairy farm that's in the rural town of Dane, so just north of Madison, like you said. And it was started in 1991 by a couple that had 
um, they had they had grown up on farms, and when when they got married, they, they ended up buying their own. And it's you know at the time I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but at the at the time that it opened up in '91, there were there were more than thirty thousand dairy farms in the state. And over the years, as you I'm sure know better than we do, um, the the dairy industry has changed dramatically, and it's consolidated, and and very few farms are left. I think there's about six thousand right now in the state. And and like many farms, the owners of this farm, Daniel and Kate Brunig, they um, they worked on the farm. Um, but as as we we don't know all of the details of its of its history. But as it as other farms like it have grown to stay afloat, they end up hiring outside um, outside labor. So whereas in the past it's been more family run farms that that depend entirely on the labor of of mom, dad, and the kids. Now farms like this one um, have, have been hiring immigrants. So in the past, it had been more Mexican immigrants, undocumented labor. And in recent years, I'd say in the past five years or so, we're seeing a, a huge increase in the number of Central Americans. And there's clearly a correlation with what's happening at the border. Um, but in the Dane area in the past, in, in those years, the the workforce has been um, Nicaraguan. And so at this farm, DNK, uh, at any given point, it had six workers um, all Nicaraguan, and and they they worked three turns, so they'd work. Mil- they, there were three uh, milking shifts, and so some of the workers would be in the parlor milking the cows. One worker would be in charge of cleaning up after the cows and corralling them into and out of the parlor. So take that further. Here you have this smaller farm by today's standards in in, in Wisconsin, with the family, the owners hard-pressed, hard-squeezed by all sorts of variables, becoming dependent upon uh, immigrant labor. And that opens up, of course, this whole nexus of exploitation, multi-tiered. Talk about that, the conditions of work, uh, what went on at this farm. Yeah, you know, we've been, we're both new to learning about the dairy industry, and we have uh, gotten a lot of insight over these last several months. It's been surprising to me. I have a lot of background in in knowing about different workplaces and how harsh they can be. Um, The dairy industry is something different altogether. Like Melissa was describing, um, there are these shifts that kind of preclude you um, from living a normal life because cows need to be milked uh, on a schedule that's not just a nine to five schedule where you can go and you know raise your kids and live your life and, and do what you want to do in your spare time. Um, it's a very intense uh, schedule. And then on top of that, often you have farm workers living on the farms. And so that's something that's uh, in some ways convenient for the farm workers because these are people who are immigrants often coming with a lot of debt from their their process of of getting to the United States, so that can be upwards uh, like ten thousand dollars upwards, and then they're also trying to send money home to support their families back in Nicaragua or whatever other country they came from. Um, but them living on the farm property also creates a situation where they're just they're available at at all hours to just kind of keep working. Um, there's also an issue in Wisconsin where um, the workers are not eligible to have driver's licenses if they're not documented immigrants. And so just leaving the farm, if they didn't live on the farm, would pose an issue. Um, and so you have people who are kind of, they're not literally trapped, but many circumstances strap them in. Um, they're also generally lower wages. They vary farm to farm and we don't have data to say, to give like a solid you know, number of what's what's happening overall at every farm. But um, uh, the, the father of the boy who died, Jefferson, Jose Rodriguez was his name, is his name. Um, he was making 9.50 an hour at the time when this happened for very intense work, like Melissa said, um, sometimes working 150 hours-ish over two weeks. And, and, and to for the listeners who don't know, agriculture is excluded from so many labor protections in this country. And one of them is is the right to overtime pay. So, you know, for a lot of jobs, if you work more than 40 hours a week, you are paid time and a half. That's not the case in dairy. So you have a guy like Jose working 80 hours in a week, and he's not getting extra overtime pay for those. He's getting paid for those hours, but not at the time and a half rate. Uh, I wanted to mention the safety issues, too. Maybe you're going to ask about that, Alan. Um 
but if I may, uh, sure. there we have been collecting records um, tied to many farms, police records, as well as OSHA records as the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It's part of the Federal Department of Labor. Um, and that's given us some glimpse into the more severe injuries, mostly the, the ones that have caused fatalities at farms. Um, and it's really risky work. It's people die uh, for different types of reasons related to working with cows, which are you know beautiful but gigantic, dangerous animals um, that sometimes kick people in a way that kills them. Um, sometimes they trample uh, workers. Um, there are chemicals that are used for different parts uh, of the milking process that can be toxic sometimes those chemicals workers aren't trained to use properly in a way that's safe sometimes people don't know what they're really being exposed to and how to handle that um in a way that doesn't pose risks to their health um there are a lot of different things that can lead to death when you're working on a dairy farm and then uh what goes less um, recorded are injuries and illnesses that might be caused in the course of work. And that's something that we're trying to learn more about because they aren't tracked very well. You're listening to Mariam Jamil and Melissa Sanchez, two investigative uh, reporters, journalists with ProPublica, who've worked on this article about death in Dairyland, uh, a story right here in Dane County that was released, gone national this morning. We'll be opening up the phone lines per usual at half past the hour. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I found it interesting that there was, in a sense, a stratification based on language uh, in the workforce, uh, that those... uh, Migrant uh, laborers who had some English uh, took on tasks of management, uh, basically, uh, on the farm. Uh, And the flip side of that, of course, is that the the owners of the farm had little contact, it seems, or or no direct relation with with the the new incoming migrants who were hired and, and so on, scheduled. Uh, by uh, their fellow workers. I'm really glad you picked up on that. That's something we notice on this farm and on a lot of other farms. The, the, the stratification sometimes is tied to immigration itself. Like there, the, some of the, the more manager type folks uh, are often Mexican who have been here longer. They're rarely documented. People who are documented do not want to do this work. This is just to be clear. <laughs> this is very much labor that is performed by people who can't legally get a job doing something else. But um, but the, the language issue is really significant. And so, and that there's a really great researcher named Julie Keller who's written about this. She has a book called Milking in the Shadows. It's focused on, on, on dairy farms in Wisconsin. But she also, also notes this kind of this shift that's happened. And, um, and I mean, at the, and at the top of that stratification is the owners of the farm who, thanks to hired label, labor, are able to live their lives, like Mariam said, are, are able to, to start going to their kids' football games at night. They're able to not have to be so tied to the farm and all, all the work. They can depend on the middle managers to hire, to schedule, et cetera, and then on, on all the other workers to, to do the work. Um, one thing that's interesting with, with this case is that the I mean, middle managers, I'm, I'm making air quotes, it might be too grand of a term too for, for, for what's happening. It's maybe a little bit informal, but um, the it, it appears that at least in, in the cases that we, we learned about at this farm, that it was this these kind of supervisor immigrants who um, trained their new coworkers on how to use this really dangerous machinery. And the the owner of the farm has said in a deposition that he was always around for the training, like training would happen on, under his watch in the daytime. But that's not, but we're, it's unclear what involvement the the employer actually has in ensuring that the workers know what they're doing. And that is very much tied to the language barrier. Talk about the working and living conditions under which uh, the Rodriguez is labored. Uh, that is, you, we've talked, you've touched on pay and hours and so on, but talk, for instance, about where father, the father and son lived. 
Yeah, so uh, Jose Rodriguez and his son Jefferson and two other workers lived in, in a barn. They lived in sort of an apartment that was created, uh, that was built above a barn. Um, the owner of the farm uh, in a deposition, Dan Brunig, he described it as something that was meant as more, more of a rest area and not as something that was intended and like fully furnished for like full-time living. But we, so, so we worked, we, we haven't actually been to that barn, um, but we worked really hard to, to confirm, you know, what, what happened and whether Jose really lived there and, and multiple people uh, confirmed to us that, that that was the case. So um, there were, there were cows that were passing through this barn, hundreds of cows Um kind of underneath them. And yeah, the, the two of them lived in a bunk bed and shared a room with another worker. That's where they lived. Yeah, I, it mentions in the article, of course, that they, they were above the <laughs> milking parlor. I love that term. But, but, but that the smells and the environment, the ambience for this eight-year-old kid sharing a bunk bed with his dad uh, must have really been incredible. Uh, and not... Unusual is the point, of course, of all this. They, the the Rodriguez's are not unique, exceptional, uh, distinct in, in the sense of, again, coming back to the living and working conditions. What's, you know, and, and I'm, I'm the mom of, of two little kids, and so that's the part that really has sucked me in from the beginning. I can't imagine my son living above a barn, constantly smelling manure, and we know we, we heard like that the vibe like is very loud. If you ever go near a milking parlor, you you can hear it. And the and Jose told us the floors would vibrate. Um, and it was it was just a constant sound and smell. In some housing, in some situations, like there's like always like dust in the air, and it's unclear whether that's like manure or feed. Um, but what's you're right, Jose and his son's situation wasn't unique. But it's really hard to know what's happening because. From as far as we can tell, there is no regulation, there is no data, there is no, there's no record keeping of employer provided housing for the dairy industry. And that seems to us like a pretty significant regulatory like loophole. And we've heard and we've seen housing that is fine, that it's great. We, we, we know that there's, there's, there's dairy farmers who, whether out of goodwill or because they can afford it more, because they, they make more money, they, they, they put their workers up in apartments in town. Um, and it's not like, you know, some big luxurious apartment, but it's like, it's not, uh, it's not above a barn, you know, it's not inside of a barn. Um, but we've also been inside of housing that is covered in black mold, that there's, there's giant holes in the ceilings, that, that it's, housing that is not fit for for any like no american would want their child or would want to live there so so that's that's one area that we're really interested in exploring next especially because there's more kids there's more kids in these situations than maybe there were 10 or 15 years ago and that's because of you know this this shift in, in migration and you have more central americans coming in with families so what happened to jefferson rodriguez Yeah, so Jefferson Rodriguez, he he lived on this farm with his father, like we just talked about. His father was often um, doing his different shifts, milking cows. So one night, it was the night of July 26, 2019, um, Jose and another colleague were in the milking parlor doing their work. Um, Jefferson had a, a habit of sort of, you know, he'd spend a lot of time by himself, he'd entertain himself, so he would, you know, put on these big... Uh, rubber boots and and come out of the apartment where he lived and kind of hang out with the workers. Um, it was another worker's first day on that farm. Um, he had been trained earlier um, on how to use the the skid steer, which is this uh, machine that kind of looks like a tractor but is different from a tractor, and it kind of has the it has the function of of lifting things up, and so it's used to scrape manure. Uh, out of the different corrals where the cows are kept. Um, and it's this gigantic, uh, I think 6,700-ish pound machine. Um, it's very loud, um, has a huge motor, it's very heavy. Okay, so it was his job, this new worker, um, to, 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 to start cleaning. He's headed into his second shift, it's now dark. Um, 
the an expert inspected this machine a couple months later and said that the lights on the machine did not work and that's what our reporting shows as well so it was a very dark environment this guy's new it's very loud okay then jefferson who's again an eight-year-old kid on a farm um at some point he wanders near this skid steer and this worker starts reversing it to just go he's trying to quickly do his duties um and he starts reversing the machine and then he feels it kind of tremble underneath him he feels that something's a little bit wrong and then he sees this body in front of him and jefferson has been run over and and that's what happened so what takes what occurs in the immediate aftermath this emergent emergency goes out uh, police arrive on the scene talk about that because it's so much part of the story, uh, and, you know, that, that I want to get to. Yeah. So um, after this man accidentally runs over this child, you know, he runs, grabs a father. Some another worker runs to tell the the bosses. The worker doesn't speak English, so she just screams out, "Jose's baby!" The the owners of the farm come out and immediately call nine one one and try to do CPR on this boy, but because of that language barrier. They didn't know what happened. The The owners of the farm thought the boy might have been trampled by a cow. I mean, it's there's cows around everywhere. And, and, and they don't know how to extract information from the people who work for them who only speak Spanish. And, and so the first deputy arrives, and he's from Columbia County, and he's just there for a little bit until folks from Dane can show up because that's that's the jurisdiction um, that, has the, that has this property. And... Um, I can't remember how many officials from Dane County Sheriff's Office showed up. At some, you know, at some point, it was probably close to a dozen. And of all of them, only one of them spoke Spanish at any level. And so this is the person who then is, is she's she's not a detective. She's 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 a you know a, a patrol deputy. Um, she but she speaks some Spanish. She learned it in school. And so because everybody knows that she speaks Spanish, she's the one whose whose job is to find out what happened. And um, and we spoke we spoke with her. Her name is Anne Angolia. She's a veteran of the of the of the department, um, and she reports that she speaks. Uh, she doesn't consider herself a fluent Spanish speaker, but she's proficient. And she's taken years and years of Spanish in school, but that was you know a few decades ago. Um, and she interviews Jose, and the scene. And we describe this in the story because we have so many records from that night and video, and we've spoken with so many people. This man was was hysterical. He was screaming and sobbing and Anne told us that she was afraid that he was going to kill himself. Like, I, I just can't imagine what this man was going through. And it took her a half hour to get him to stop screaming. And finally, she tried to ask him what happened and he took her to a part of the property where there was a skid steer. And she didn't know how to ask, how to use, how to say skid steer in Spanish. So she asked, she thought that she asked him whether he had run his son over with that skid steer in her Spanish. But the words that she used didn't actually say that. And we learned this in, in interviewing her. The, the words that she used in Spanish were golpe su hijo con la máquina. And a little literal translation of that is hit your son with a machine. But there's no subject or verb in that. The, the word hit is more, is, isn't, isn't a verb in this construct. Um, and if you speak some Spanish, you know that, you know, verbs in Spanish, if you're con you conjugate them, you can figure out what the subject is. But the way that she said it, you you couldn't. And she says this to him and she points at the machine and she points at Jose and he says, yes. And he says, yes, we learned later because he thought that she was asking whether his son was hit by the machine. And so he said, yes, of course, the son was hit by my son was hit by the machine. And that's that's the extent of. of because because of that interaction. Um, the deputies, the, the sheriff's office understood that this man had run over his own son. And that was the official record. The death was ruled an accident. Jose did not go to jail for what happened, but he was blamed for his son's death publicly in the media. And there were, there were all sorts of very tragic, sad, loving stories that were published afterward because it's, it's horrific when any child dies. And if a parent kills, it kills their child. It's awful. But in this case, that's not actually what happened. It was another worker who had just started working that very day, who was working with a machine that might not have been, that might not have had functioning lights. Um, and because of a language barrier, 
um, police got it wrong. And so this man for, for the past three and a half years has been living with, with this, this, this wrong, you know, being wrongfully blamed. I want to continue on with, with the story, but I want to pause here because the language barrier uh, is such an important part of it. Um, but it's not just the language barrier that is the the miscommunication or non-communication between two individuals, uh, but a a system really a structure that has produced uh, these. This it's a flawed system really. That um, on on the books there's supposed to be a, a Spanish speaker in in, in these incidents, um, official or you know official. You tell us that um, Anne Angolia uh, had limited capacity. There's this miscommunication going on, but that becomes the official account, the newspaper's report, uh, because they're drawing from the police report, uh, becomes the official uh, story. So talk about that a little bit, That this, if you might. Yeah, the so you're raising a really, really good point. Um, and... Angolia didn't have the level of Spanish that would have been needed to investigate this case properly, but the way that the Dane County Sheriff's Office's policies uh, are, are written or are not written, I'll tell you more about that, um, really kind of set up a situation like this to happen. Um, and it goes beyond the Sheriff's Office. It's something that that we've seen to, to some extent statewide and, and even nationwide. So. At the Dane County Sheriff's Office, um, first of all, employees aren't tested on their language abilities. That is, they are self-reported. So if somebody says they're fluent in a language, they might be sent out to then, you know, investigate a case, but nobody really knows other than them what their true abilities are. And maybe they don't have a full awareness of what their true abilities are either. And as we see in that case, that can have really dire consequences. Um, so another thing is that they don't have written policies at all on what an officer should really even be doing when they encounter someone who doesn't speak, who, who speaks a language other than English and doesn't have proficiency in English. Um, so there are many things that they can do. This is not like a new problem. This is something that's been studied. The Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department has detailed guidelines on, on what uh, law enforcement should be doing. Um, there are trained interpreters who are certified and speak a very high level of Spanish and other languages in Wisconsin. There's a very easy to find roster of who these people are and how to contact them. Um, they are primarily used by the Wisconsin court system that has a really in-depth program for ensuring uh, language access to limited English speakers. Um, I think the reality of, uh, from, from our reporting, like the reality of accessing these uh, interpreters when you're on the job trying to meet an emergency um, to interpreters who are usually used in the courts um, is really difficult. Um, they're also able to use a, a police officer, a sheriff's deputy could potentially also call an interpretation service like Language Line. But again, there isn't training on when they should be using that and when they shouldn't be. We heard from Deputy Angolia that the reality of doing that is also very difficult because sometimes they're out in rural areas. Sometimes you're in an emergency, it can take a long time to wait. Anyway, so there are all these barriers um, that that have potential solutions. We've seen how the Madison Police Department nearby has a different system um, that seems to be more effective than what's happening at the Dane uh, County Sheriff's Office. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, there isn't a written policy. Um, if I can back up a little bit more, um, the uh, Civil Rights Act has a, a portion written in that says that any agency that is receiving federal funding, which Dane County Sheriff's Office receives federal funding, needs to be accessible uh, to people of limited English proficiency and basically just needs to be non-discriminatory. Um, but even that, that, uh, that portion of the Civil Rights Act is so thin and so like difficult to enforce from what we understand that it's just what different departments are doing, even if they have that federal obligation, varies just so much one department to the next and you have situations like what we've seen we've seen records showing that um officers will be asking children to interpret um in an emergency situation and it's a mess 
And, of course, the Civil Rights Act in total has been under siege, under attack, uh, turned back at many different levels. Again, you're listening to Mariam Jamil and Melissa Sanchez. We're talking about uh, death in Dairyland, uh, rural Dane County, Wisconsin, USA. Phone lines are open at 256, excuse me, 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, 608-256-2001. Extension 9. So you have this English version that becomes the record. But you also tell us in the article that there's, in a sense, this parallel universe, this parallel uh, Spanish-speaking understanding of what what actually happened. Um, Talk about that. That is that this version that many in this community of Nicaraguans and other immigrant dairy workers had heard. And and th- that brings us, of course, to this other man who was uh, riding the bobcat, the uh, this heavy piece of machinery. I'm so glad that you used that language about the parallel universe because that's those are the words that Mariam and I have been using this whole time. There's these two parallel worlds on a single farm, like the English world of the owners and the Spanish world of the people who work who work for them. Um. So after Jefferson's death, you know, it took Jose, his father, some time to even realize that he was being blamed for what happened. But very quickly, the news of the death got out between, you know, from from him, from the other two workers who were there that night, from the workers who weren't there, via phone calls, WhatsApp. We, we heard from one worker who was out in Green Bay that night, and he got a call from the third worker there. He was at a he was he was at a bar, and he got a call from his friend. And she told him, you know, you know, Jefferson was killed. It was a new guy. And so he immediately starts calling people, a guy who gets makes a living driving people around um, because he can't access driver's licenses, you know, showed up. And he starts telling people more friends and acquaintances show up. So in Spanish, everybody understands there was an accident and, um, and this little boy was killed by a worker who had just started that day. There's and, and when I started looking into this last year, that I remember my first day I went into uh, a little convenience store, Latino convenience store in Wanakee. And I, and the owners are Mexican. And I told them I was looking into this death. And, you know, at this point I was aware that there were two versions, but these were the first people who I was talking to in Spanish who were not directly connected to, to it. And I asked them like what they understood happened. And they immediately said, oh, there was a new worker. It was his first day. You know, this is what happened. And I, I told them, did you know the police had this other account? And they were shocked. And there were there were maybe a half dozen people in the store. We were all talking, and nobody had ever heard of this official account. So that it's it's it was really stunning to us that um, that that, inform- that that those two worlds just didn't didn't overlap. Again, six zero eight two five six two thousand one extension nine. If you want to join us, uh, this is often the case. So suddenly, we'll get a flurry of calls, perhaps toward, right toward the end of the hour. Uh, but people, I would like to think, are, are transfixed by this account, this local story that has uh, national uh, significance, really. So what happens off of that? That is, there's, here we are, f- four years down the road, and there's a lawsuit, and different sides, you know, coming up against each other, and and the insurance companies and so on entering into it with with attorneys and uh, wrangling going on and so on. Talk about that a little bit and why that's significant. Um, so after, after the death, uh, the father tried to correct the record, but he worked crazy hours. He didn't speak English. And he wasn't successful. He had a friend call the detective on the case and try to clear the record. But there was some sort of miscommunication. It's unclear what happened, but that detective passed the tip off to somebody else. And that person was never called back. Jose was not able to correct the record. And so, you know, just, just, to, just to be clear, like there was an attempt to fix it. and It didn't get fixed. And it was kind of left as it was. Um, and, and he says he starts hearing from lawyers all over the country right after his son died. There was news about this death and lawyers immediately started reaching out and asking if he wanted to file, um, 
a wrongful death suit. And and so Jose and his and his and the, the boy's mother, who continues to live in Nicaragua, decided to sue the farm for wrongful death, um, mostly because according to Jose, he wanted to clear his name. And and so they file a lawsuit a year later, and it's still ongoing. It's set to go to trial in June. But one of the key issues in this lawsuit is who was driving the skid steer, because the official account is that it was the father. And according to the father, and and you know they have very limited evidence that one of the other workers was there. The man who was driving the skid steer at some point gave it gave an affidavit saying that he had done this, but the the lawyers who prepared the affidavit put the wrong name on it. There were all these like just it was it was a mess. But there there's 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 limited evidence officially that the father did not kill his child and there's there's a lot of evidence officially that he did because of the sheriff's report so that's become just a very messy situation where the lawyers for the farm and the insurance company say that the dad if if the dad had been driving the skid steer he might not be entitled to any money but if he wasn't then he would be and so it just it's it becomes very complicated two five six six oh eight two five six two thousand one extension nine You wrote that even if the authorities had gotten it right, though, it spoken with Blandon, this other man, uh, the night of Jefferson, that Jefferson died, it is unclear whether much would have changed. How so? Why so? So uh, Jefferson's death was ruled an accident, and most of the time um, farming accidents or farming tra- tragedies, deaths, are ruled accidents. And we're and by saying that, we don't mean to, to be implying at all that they should be criminally investigated or anything like that, necessarily. But um, these circumstances continue to repeat themselves. So children, uh, approximately 100 children die on farms each year, research shows. Um, uh, just in the week that Jefferson died, um, there were three other children that that died. Uh, one quite nearby DNK Dairy within Wisconsin, um, and these these accidents, which we learn from researchers, we couldn't we shouldn't be calling them accidents because they are preventable and there are circumstances that are leading this to happen. They are it's not a coincidence that children are dying on farms. Anyway, so these circumstances continue to present themselves. Um, there there are still uh, we've heard anecdotally um, of other children of immigrant workers who are on farms, people who they came with their children for different reasons. And while you're working full time and making uh, such a low wage, having, you know, getting proper childcare is very difficult. And that's a challenge that presents itself nationwide um, in many industries. And um, so, yeah, the, the problem that that wouldn't have occurred had there been proper language access um, at the Dane County Sheriff's Office um, is that Jose wouldn't have been wrongfully blamed for his own child's death. But the systemic problems that led to Jefferson's death um, remain and wouldn't have been different. You know, I want to come back to this whole notion of accident uh, but first, uh, Chuck tells me, that our, my engineer today tells me, that we do have a caller. Hello, Steve, you're on the air. Yeah, good afternoon, Alan, uh, Ms. Sanchez, and Mr. Jamil. Um, my puritanical father sought to instill a working ethic in his tearful 11-year-old son by compelling me to work alongside Mexican seasonal migrant vegetable pickers on our upstate farm in the 1960s. These industrious and completely unregulated piecework laborers, man, woman, and child, were housed in a camp physically separate from our manor house compound. You did touch on the housing issue. My question is, has this institution of the workers' camp and its secret life completely died out? Thank you. Um, I, can, I can take that. So 
it's it's different. I, I think I think the camps still exist. There is some regulation and and uh, they have to be inspected. That's it's it's not not the case for dairy. D dairy doesn't look like what you're describing. It's typically like an old house on the property. Um, sometimes it's a trailer on the property. Sometimes it's the basement of the owners. But the the camp situation with with um like with other kinds of agriculture like seasonal work, there is regulation and inspections. Um, but that's not to say that it's any good. There's 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 still very significant um, problems with the housing, and I guess what we can say is like at least there's there's like a record of where all those plate all those homes are, and and there are government um, agents either federal or or at the state level. Um, I think this falls under the wage and hour division for for federal OSHA for for sorry for the federal, the federal Department of Labor. Um, somebody does go in and inspect those, and there there are some requirements but the but the requirements don't mean that you're allowed to live in like really wonderful conditions like have access to ac for example in very hot places um but what we're seeing with dairy is that there's just there's just zero regulation there's zero inspections um so we don't actually know what that looks like and of course we know that those uh inspections and regulations and so on just didn't fall from the sky but that there's a very long documented history of uh, movements from the bottom up by laborers, by, by working class folks, by immigrant laborers, especially in Wisconsin, uh, that one, those con uh, concessions where, where they were, well, where they were one. <laughs> I want to come back to this whole notion of accident because the historian in me says, what accident that... This boy ended up behind this tractor because of whole sets of circumstances tailing. You know, it gets back to this question I had earlier of the Nicaraguans in Dane County uh, forced to come here. And that that is a kind of continuation of, of this long legacy of what occurred in Nicaragua trailing back, well, some would say to the 1980s, but even to the 1930s of uh, American meddling in that society and what it disrupted and, and set people to, you know, to flee, really, right down to the present. Yeah, um, I mean, the U.S. government is notorious for having helped prop up dictatorships all over Latin America, especially in Central America and countries like Nicaragua and Guatemala. Um, in Nicaragua, there was a Somoza regime. There was a there was a revolution. There were a lot of people that fled those country, that, that country and its neighboring countries in the eighties and nineties. Um, but the situation in Nicaragua is different. It's you know in a, in a way because the migration like in recent years, um, the migration hasn't been the same as it has been with uh, with Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, the so called Northern Triangle, where those are countries that have been absolutely devastated by gangs that are also a product of of our, of, of our policies as we've deported, you know, um, the former children of civil uh, of of civil war uh, refugees. Um, after having grown up in Los Angeles where there's gangs, they've gone to, back to Central America and, and that's happened, but, but not in Nicaragua. And that's only been very recently that that migration has happened. Um, the, the country has had the same president now since 20, 2006. Is that right? Um, Daniel Ortega, who was on a second, second turnaround, um, has taken more of an authoritarian kind of way of ruling the country in recent years. Um, he, uh, and so, some of that might be be blamed on the U.S., um, but yeah, I mean, like those countries, and it's not it's not just it's just not just like our, our U.S. intervention in Central America that's so direct with policy. But we, we have colleagues at ProPublica who have written about um, climate migration. Central America is is not a very good place to be a farmer anymore. Um, the the land doesn't give the way that it used to, and people have had to flee because of climate change from all over Central America, including people like like Jose and his family, like the land doesn't give as much as it used to. And, and you know, countries like ours are to blame for for the the, the, the climate issues that are making it difficult for people to survive in their countries. And of course, that becomes more complex when you throw in things uh, such as what what NAFTA and North American Free Trade Agreement did uh, in, in the region in terms of forcing people off the land, no, no, no longer able to compete with the, the well, agribusiness uh, 
guaranteed by NAFTA. We're getting, oh, we got about, say, eight more, seven, eight more minutes left in the hour. If you want to get in with a uh, question, a comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, Jay tells me that Mary is on the line. Hi, Mary, you're, you're on the air. Hi, um, I'm sorry if I missed this, if this was discussed. I haven't heard the whole show, but I'm wondering if the the workers involved, were they legally documented? And if if not, well, in general, do employers ever get in any trouble for hiring undocumented workers? And I'm also wondering, do the authors feel like the dairy industry would be viable in Wisconsin anymore without undocumented workers, or maybe they are all documented. I'm just kind of curious about that situation. Good question. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the the workers, to to our understanding, were not, um, they did not have work permits. They probably each had slightly different uh, situations in terms of their their documentation, but Jose Rodriguez, for, for example, like he was using um, a social security number that he had, had purchased, and, and that's what the Brunigs um, had in their paperwork related to his pay. Um, this is something that's kind of an, an open secret in, in Wisconsin as far as employment, as with many other industries and parts of the country. Um, many of the people who are doing this work are undocumented you have people in different situations sometimes you have people who are or maybe they have a um a legal asylum claim and they they do have work authorization who are working on these farms but there are many people who are undocumented um that's a very good question about whether the industry would be viable with with different um uh, pay and and different people doing the work it's not quite one that i feel i can answer maybe maybe melissa um i i personally think you can always you know there are ways to to pay people fair wages there are ways to to provide um workplaces that are are not inherently hazardous um and that there are adjustments that could be made but uh melissa if you have a thought yeah, I mean, I think if if our government wanted to prioritize this, it could. It does not have to be this way. We do not have to have people living in barns with their children and making, you know, nine dollars an hour and working eighty-hour weeks. But that that's like a that's like a, a federal decision. We can subsidize we subsidize industries when we feel like it. Um, I will say that the dairy industry says. I mean, it, it's very actively has been pushing for access to a legal guest worker program. Other kinds of agriculture, like crop picking, et cetera, migrant work, there, 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 there is a legal guest worker program that exists and dairy desperately wants in on it because it wants, it wants labor. Um, and so a lot of people say that would be the solution because then you, you'd be able to know where the housing is, you know where the people are, et cetera. But I think you know, we're a little cautious of saying that this is this is the thing that would fix everything because we know from other reporting that's been done that that the the, the federal guest worker program is also really crummy and people are stuck. They're tied to their employer and employer employers can be abusive, have have awful conditions, et cetera. But they they are only allowed to be in this country if if they have that same employer. So it's a it's a system that's really um, easy to to exploit people with um but 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 to, to the question of I, I i don't i don't think the dairy industry can survive without without undocumented underpaid workers um unless there's like a significant reform and that would have to come from 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 the government i want to stay with this issue of the undocumented uh, that is toward the end of your piece uh you write that the uh, D&K Dairy Farms lawyer has repeatedly cast doubt on Rodriguez's credibility in part because he used an alias to get the job, right? Uh, even as the Brunings business depended on undocumented workers who used aliases to get hired. So there it is, right? In, in a nutshell, it's condensed down to, well, we... You were here illegally. You used, uh, you know, well, basically I- illegal documents uh, f- that you bought. Uh, we're going to now hold you liable. We're going to 
your ki- your kid died in the, in the back getting run over by, by the machine, but we're going to smear your credibility, your story, by saying, well, you had this other track record of illegality, if you will. It's a, a horrible catch-22. It's, it's a very weird catch-22. And nobody says anything about it in court, but it's something, you know, I, I sit back there and, and I listen as lawyers talk about, well, it's not just a question of misspellings of names because there's also misspellings of names because people are coming from countries where documentation, where, 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 where names are often misspelled. But um, yeah, it, it goes to the heart of this entire problem. And somebody had asked about whether employers ever get in trouble for hiring undocumented labor. They rarely do in the dairy industry. There have been a couple of high profile um, government, you know, goes after some big employer who was hiring undocumented people. But those are one every few years. It, it does not happen. But everybody knows what's happening. You know, we, we, we talk to farmers. We've been driving around talking to farmers. And, and you know, they don't want to go on the record to talk about how I knowingly hire undocumented workers. There are a couple of farmers in Wisconsin who, who will say that. But it, it is understood that this is what happened. So it, it is it is it was it is stunning to me to hear lawyers use this now as an attack for um, against this person. You know, we're getting down toward the end of the hour. Talk a little bit about a ProPublica and b uh, where you're going with this work or projects you have in the hopper. Yeah, thank you for asking. So ProPublica is a nonprofit news organization. We basically do work that would journalism that falls under the category of investigative or public service journalism. Um, and uh, we decided to, to kind of look into this industry and a lot of the questions that we've been talking about um, over this hour uh, for hopefully the foreseeable future. And so a lot of the issues that we've raised, like um, the housing conditions uh, for workers in the dairy industry, um, the issue of encounters with police um, for people who are immigrants who do not speak English and and do not drive legally because of the, the circumstances of them not having a driver's license access. Um, those are a couple of the issues we hope to look into. We also talked about how injuries on farms are something that don't seem to be very well documented and are quite possibly happening at much greater rates than, than what's officially known. Um, those are all things that that we want to be looking into. We're also just really open to hearing from people. Like we only know what we know so far. We've talked to a lot of, you know, we've talked to as many people as we can just in the community. And thankfully this was a beautiful opportunity that reporting on the story was a great opportunity to just kind of ask people, you know, what do you know about what happened in this case? And like, what else is your life like as a farm worker or someone in the community? Anyway, but we wanna hear things that we don't know yet. So if there are people who grew up on farms, who are in the industry in some other connected way, maybe they're doctors, maybe they're tied to agriculture, anything, if you have something to say, so, we would really love to hear from you. So Mariam, you say you'd love to hear from people. How can they reach you? Yeah, so you can email us, you can call us. If you go to um, propublica.com slash ranchos or, yes. Dot org. Dot org, sorry, oh my gosh, we're, we're a nonprofit. Um, you can see uh, our work in this series and, um, and and you can contact us multiple ways. We have a form also set up for people to talk to us about dairy work. And of course, uh, Jade, our producer, sent me a little note here. Says, "I'll share the story on the web." You know, we're right down to it. Uh, we could probably go on for another hour on all in all sorts of realms. Uh, but I want to thank both of you ever so much, Miriam Jamil and Melissa Sanchez, uh, for the work you've done, uh, the work you're doing, and uh, keep on keeping on. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Uh, For those of you uh, who might be interested, I hope all of you are interested. My next week's guest is the wonderful historian Adam Hochschild. So, uh, again, I've been your host for this hour, Alan Ruff. Thank you, and I'll be talking with you next week. I can't!